We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Joining us today on the podcast is Therese Taylor Stinson who is the co-editor of Embodied Spirits, Stories of Spiritual Directors of Color, and the editor of Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, Stories of Contemplation and Justice. She is an ordained deacon and elder in the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, a lay pastoral caregiver, and a graduate of and an associate faculty member of the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation, where she previously served as a member of the board. She is the founder of the Spiritual Directors of Color Network, an international ecumenical and interfaith association of over 100 persons of color with a ministry of spiritual accompaniment. A native of Washington, DC, Therese now lives in Maryland. Her ministry, like her books, explores the intersection of contemplative spirituality and the ongoing struggle for social justice and the dismantling of racism. Therese, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you, Carl. Great to be here. So we would love to begin our conversation by hearing a little bit more about your relationship with silence. How has silence been a part of your life and your spiritual journey? Well, first of all, I guess I must disclose that I was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, my grandmother, um, who was uh, grow, grew up in the Baptist church, converted to Catholicism in her adulthood. And um, there was a black Catholic church, St. Augustine's, um, only less than a block, probably like across the street from where they lived. And she converted to Catholicism. And so my grandmother is uh, actually my, well, along with being in Catholic school, my introduction to silence. My grandmother would spend time in her room. She had some Catholic prayer books. She didn't go to church much, but she prayed continually. And she would share stories about, with me about her conversion. And I would, and my grandmother, I was so close to her um, I would sometimes just go into her room and sit with her and she would be sitting there in silence praying. And I think that was my introduction to praying as well. And so then um, because the public schools uh, would not let me go to the first grade at five years old, my birthday's in November. So I wasn't too far off from the other kids, but too late for them to receive me into the public schools. My mother enrolled me in a Catholic school in our neighborhood, which I guess we were, would have been in their parish. And so um, some of that quiet and silence, it was part of the way the education was set up for us. Um, sometimes it was um, sort of, especially as a punishing, <laughs> more so than something that you 
reached for, but I think it taught me about prayer in that way and learning to sit and think about um, things. Because even in class, uh, sometimes we would be asked to sit quietly um, to gather our thoughts about things that we were learning. And, and then I've always loved nature. I love, uh, like Thurman, I love trees. <laughs> I, I don't talk to them exactly, but um, I do love trees and I love nature, all kinds of nature. Uh, some of it a little more frightening perhaps than others. I love the ocean. I love the sunrise and the moonrise. And um, those kinds of things bring me into silence and a kind of pondering and sitting with uh, what we call God, but to me is more mystery. I, you know, I recently just came across some of that, some of those, uh, those Thurman writings on, on trees where he says I needed the strength of that tree. <laughs> and yes. like say, I would hold my, uh, I would hold my ground. I, I just love that. So I really want to dive in to this incredibly important work you did. And you edited a book titled Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, which is a book of of essays about contemplation and justice. And first I'm wondering when you saw those two things merge in your own life mm -hmm. and then what led you to write the book? I, I think when I really consciously became aware of how contemplation and justice came together is when I was introduced to Thurman and, and mm -hmm. in particular his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And after actually uh, gathering this network together, um, I came to know both Loretta Coleman Brown and another board member uh, that's uh, part of the network, uh, Jacqueline Smith Crooks, who had stories about not so much Loretta, but Jacqueline uh, grew up in the South in Macon, Georgia, and her father was involved in the NAACP. And so they were very much involved in Macon and maybe other parts of Georgia around that area in civil protest. And um, they had Saturday schools where they would learn how to deal with the possibility of being uh, confronted with some kind of aggression. And um, I learned that uh, much of that came from Thurman's teachings that even though Thurman um, himself did not march in, uh, in the movement, he did not engage in civil protest, um, he undergirded the movement with contemplative practice, which wouldn't have even been called back then, but mm -hmm. um, teaching them silence and focusing so that when they were approached in a violent kind of way, they would not respond with violence because it would more than likely have ended up with their injury more so than the person that they were responding to. Mm. Mm. I love that undergirded the movement with contemplative practice. That mm. is a powerful oh, yes. statement. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and, and Thurman um, was not thought well of actually because he was not part of the the physical civil protest, but he would have been, he was born in 1900. So he would have been in his 60s uh, at the time. And most of the people involved in the civil rights movement were, you know, well, a lot of them were students or, you know, younger adults. And so he was an older person, but he was convinced that his job was spiritual and not to be necessarily 
physical present in the protest. And so it's, it, I think he's gotten missed a lot for what he really gave. It would have been a whole different story <laughs> um, had mm. um, they not been trained and had those Saturday schools where they learned how to control themselves and to not internalize the physical violence that was coming against them. And Therese, in the book, are there any stories in particular that you that were deeply personal or touching for you in your own life? The stories from other authors, you mean? Right, right. Macy Sparks wrote uh, in chapter 11, spend time with others, prepare your heart for social justice. And Maisie talks a lot about othering. And, and I really found her, I really enjoyed her chapter. She writes very well. And the way she could give different examples of how we other one another mm -hmm. and probably helped me to think about more deeply what othering means, you know, um, in not just in this country, but in our country, we particularly have an issue with racism, but it shows up all around the world in different ways in colonialization and uh, different things. But what Maisie uh, helped me to understand is that I think othering is part of our human condition that we um, automatically in order, uh, we let our egos sort of tell us what to do and and to make ourselves feel better about ourselves we other other people and the way she used that word other all through there and made it make sense without you know continuing this using continuing to say how it was othering other people really spoke to me about that so that was one one of the chapters that I enjoyed very much. And I also enjoyed uh, Sophia Park's chapter. Her chapter was chapter eight, uh, a reflection on contemplation and social justice in a global era. And, and her description of the, the continued protest that goes on on Jeju Island in Korea, in South Korea, um, how the people just gather in community from all over the world, um, different cultures and races, um, just to give a demonstration of peace on an island that actually is occupied, I think, by the U United States Navy. <laughs> so it's occupied by the military. So that, that story was very profound to me as well. I, you know, um, all of these stories become <laughs> precious to me because they're, they're in this book, but I'll name one other. And that's Soyinka Rahim's story that comes after um, Ainita's chapter, chapter one, where she talks about prayer and social justice. No, it comes after my chapter, actually, on compassion. And Ainita begins the chapter. But Soyinka Rahim is telling her story. She's never written, authored anything before, published anything before. And she has quite a, a struggle in her life. Um, she's writing her story. It was um, not easy for her, so she writes it in the third person. She gives the different challenges or traumas that happened in her life uh, a character. And, and that's how she tells her story. And mm -hmm. so I thought it was really important in this book not to just come across as academics or um, you know, that we have an expertise in this area, but to heal, hear from a real person 
and, and all of us, especially if we're people of color, we're real persons with different stories and struggles. And for her to have the, 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 um, the bravery to, to um, share that with us meant a lot to me and it meant a lot to her to put it, write it down on paper and process it that way. Mm. I'm so profoundly moved, especially hearing the connection of when you first, the first thing you said about Howard Thurman and being, being kind of foundational for the whole entire movement of racial against mm-hmm. racial injustice. And, and then, as you said, that can extend into colonialism and, and all sorts of things mm-hmm. of patriarchal or, or all these kinds of oppressions that, that our culture and all the different cultures seem to implement upon us. And I'm struck by your description of the article on othering, because <laughs> we just had one of our recent podcasts uh, guests, Martin Laird, came on and spoke about silence. And one of the things he points out, which I found was a powerful quote, is that how silence unothers the other. And I, I see this connection of Howard Thurman doing that, uh, like letting us all know, reminding us all that the way forward, you know, to talk about justice, to talk about peace, to talk about how we should treat each other as human beings, we have to spend time with the other and, and to spend time in that quiet, in that silence, to see the other inside of us, to see the other in our neighbors, to see the other that's out there and that as you described it, the way we other so many other people, there's a part of our mind that does that, the ego, et cetera, how we do that even to ourselves. I'm just profoundly moved by that. So I'm thinking of a few things as you say that, some some in agreement with you and some wanting to yeah. struggle with you about it. Sure, lovely. My chapter, I didn't mention my own chapter. I tried to mention other people, but my, my, my chapter on compassion, mm-hmm. I think has a lot to do with being with oneself. So being still and with oneself, mm. because unlike what most people think about compassion, they, at least in our, it seems to me, in, in the way we use language today, people think compassion and empathy are the same things, but mm-hmm. they're not. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and if you look at the biblical text and the, and the words, the Greek words that were used, or maybe it was the Aramaic words from Jesus that were used for that word, um, compassion. Mm. It's involuntary. Compassion is totally involuntary. Mm. It's something that just wells up in you and you might not even know why you feel connected to the, right. to the person that you're connected to. Right. Whereas empathy means that you have some knowledge, maybe you've gone through it yourself or something like that. So you can kind of understand it from an intellectual place. Right. One of my favorite people, historical people, is the cloud, the cloud of unknowing. And he talks about, you know, how you reach a greater place of contemplation when you stop, you let go of what you think you know. Right. And and just be um, in the mystery or in in the presence. So I, I think that in that case, that silence is a good way to kind of get in touch with yourself right. and allow that involuntary compassion to come forward. Right. Right. On the other hand, uh, with especially with because I don't know a whole lot about other cultures so much, but I do know something about 
African-American history and culture and enslavement and the Middle Passage. Silence can, and also as a spiritual director, I sit with some people of color. I sit with all kinds of people, but some people of color, and that's where I encounter people who um, silence is uncomfortable for them. Mm. Um, it feels um, oppressive or imposing. Um, it makes them maybe go places or feel things they're not ready for mm. um, or that they aren't ready to express um, to me. And mm. so I think we have to be really careful with silence. And maybe the if we are able to hold that silence, which to me doesn't always have to mean being in quiet necessarily, but right. finding Th that place within us that is deeper and be, I, I think that things like centering prayer and, you know, what the ways that we be still within us are to teach us more deeply how to find that still place, even in the midst of chaos. So mm. um, I don't know that silence is a requirement uh, to find that still place within. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. You're reminding me of the conversation we had on this podcast with Barbara Holm, mm -hmm. who Kevin and Casty and I are all white Americans. And so, of course, that has shaped our experience. And our conversation with Barbara was really, at least for me, I'll, I'll only speak for myself, was truly <laughs> eye-opening in learning how the African-American experience is very different than the European-American experience even when it comes to something like like centering prayer or other forms of, mm. of silent prayer. And that um, it's funny, I, I just led a retreat at the Episcopal Cathedral here in Atlanta, and I often give a pep talk about silence. And this retreat, I put in an additional slide about how silence is not the same thing as silencing. And that it's so important to recognize that we each have to find our own relationship with silence mm. and never, never, ever try to impose silence on another person. And, and that's a gift I've received, not only from Barbara, but also from reading your books, Therese. Mm. Thank um, you. Well, I want to say that I just love Barbara Holmes. I call her friend. <laughs> and and um, when I was graduating from the Shalane Spiritual Guidance Program, I decided to do it's more of an exploration than a research paper, but we were told we could uh, pick one of the historical mystics and talk about them or write something about a theme in the program, or we could do a research paper if we wanted to. And I, I decided that I needed, because all of the sources, all of the, the bibliography and everything were, were European sources, I needed to see how this connected with my culture. It's always was always my desire 
to sit with people of color. I, I'm glad that I've ended up sitting with all kinds of people, but at the at the time, it was people of color that I was hoping to be sitting with. And so I wanted to find out more about that. So I did this explore, exploration of Black spirituality, African spirituality, to see how it intersected with uh, what I had learned in this program, which was all wonderful and deepening. But doing that paper was even wonderful, even more wonderful, being able to connect the, connect the two together. And so one of the books um, that I uncovered in doing that, because there weren't many books written by African-Americans or Africans or anybody of color that talked about contemplation or contemplative spirituality from the perspective of people of color, which is why this network and all of that happened. But Barbara Holmes had this book, Joy Unspeakable, that taught me so much about how we might encounter con contemplative practice in the African-American community that might not be recognized if you're just looking at it through a European lens. Mm. Yeah, the book is glorious. Yes, it is. It's wonderful. And also Barbara Holmes, I think it she has a um a second edition now of the book that's mm -hmm. come out, mm -hmm. I think in the last year or two. But in that first edition, and it is probably still in the one now, um, she talks about the civil rights movement and how contemplation was used in that movement. And she's the one that also helped me to understand Thurman as being you know, responsible for um, giving that gift to the civil rights movement. You know, listening to you, I'm reminded, and I know you mentioned this in at least one of your books, maybe in both of them, how the desert mothers and fathers were people of color. Mm -hmm. yes. And so the really the entire Christian contemplative, well, you know, Jesus Christ was a person of color. The entire yes. Christian contemplative tradition has its roots in communities of color. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, part of the nature of white privilege is that it tends to erase the contributions of people of color in, in history once it gets filtered through the white community. And, and I certainly see how that has been at work just in the history of, of Christian mysticism. And so you talking about the Saturday schools, yeah. as, you, as you were talking, I'm sitting here thinking the people who were the trainers in the Saturday schools, they should have been the ones sitting with people like Tilden Edwards and Thomas Keating Mm. And and John Maine and all of those kinds of folks who, you know, at least in the in the white community, we see them as kind of the the fathers of the modern contemplative movement. And I think they all made a contribution. But I, it just breaks my heart to think that here was this amazing resource in the black community that the white community didn't didn't avail itself of. And, and I'm just lamenting, you know, I'm, I'm, not I'm so glad you went there. <laughs> but you know, um, as part of my uh, Lenten practice this year, one of uh, the churches in National Capital Presbytery, Northminster Presbyterian Church, um, has a, a, um, someone who's actually from Howard University. She's the professor for New Testament at Howard University, but she is also acting as the minister for Christian education at Northminster Presbyterian Church, Dr. Gay Byron. She's doing, um, it's just a, a, a three month study, one Friday each month 
Um, actually, we're going to skip April because of Easter and start early in May to, to finish up. But um, her, the, what she's sharing with us is um, ancient Ethiopia mm. and the New Testament. Mm. And um, what has come to light in her talk so far is how um, people of color have either, like the only story, uh, well, there's Siren of, Simon of Serene, I think, that helped to carry um, Jesus's cross. Um, she isn't mentioning him so much, but it, there's the Ethiopian eunuch, which, you know, mm -hmm. connects with her topic of ancient Ethiopia. And um, she tells us about the different kingdoms. There were actually four kingdoms that were dominant um, in, the, in that era, one being the Roman Empire. And the only story is about this Ethiopian eunuch. So he's a eunuch. And if you know what a eunuch means, it means that the person of color, the male person of color included in the story, even though he had a lot of power, it seems he was working, you know, in the government, in, in the, in the um, kingdom or empire of uh, Axum, he was emasculated. <laughs> so yeah. that is our, that is our image of a person of color in Christianity. Um, Jesus was made white. Um, we don't know about the Axum kingdom, um, which Ethiopia, Ethiopia then would be more than what we know of as Ethiopia now. Mm. Uh, Ethiopia was part of Egypt. It was what we call Sudan now, was Nubia then, also covered um, Eritrea, Eritrea. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce the word, mm. but that little country yeah, that's up Eritrea. at the top. Yeah. So what has come to light is, you know, when we're talking about trauma and silence, when we talk about um, people being brought from uh, West Africa and maybe other parts of Africa, who knows, to, Amer to the Americas being sold into slavery, and then um, being separated by their languages and cultures, they weren't even allowed to be with people like them. That's silencing. And then when they get finally due, at first they don't even let them read. They don't want them to have the power of the Bible. But when they finally do get to read the Bible, it turns out from this uh, conversation that we're having with Dr. Byron is that even back in the Roman Empire, probably around the time of Constantine, they, they wrote out the, the, the presence of people of color in Christianity. And so from, I know, a long time, um, it has been uh, thought that um, the Africans that came over from West Africa and other places um, weren't even Christian. But Albert Rabateau, in his book, Slave Religion, he tells a story where one of the observers of the African people talks about their religion and, and their spirituality and how they actually uh, had some of them, not all of them, but some of them um, had a rule that you shouldn't even read the Bible before you have your own encounter with mystery. And then it would be okay to read the Bible. They weren't allowed to read. And when they did finally did teach some of them how to read and everything, it turns out many of them already knew. They already knew um, the stories that were be, being given to them because there was Christianity among people of color. They weren't pagans, as they were called. And um, another uh, scholar, John M. Bitty, M-B-I-T-I, John M. Bitty, says that even as early as the third century, 
Christianity was in West Africa. So I'm so glad you brought that up, Carl, because basically we've been written out of not just the history of people of color in America, but we've been wiped off the planet or, you know, people of color in Christianity. They made Jesus white and they pretty much wiped out all of the people of color that were involved in um, the evangelization of the world, you know, in terms of Christianity. And when we do show up, we show up emasculated. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, it's just as a reminder, too, is to, to to piggyback on exactly what you said. You know, St. Augustine, who is one of the mm-hmm. great saints of the church, is from Hippo, is an, which mm-hmm. would be modern-day Algeria. He His mother was— African, you know, was was from that area. Her, his father was, you know, a Roman citizen, and so he mm-hmm. comes from that background of uh, Augustine was African. You know, I, I mean, mm-hmm. and one of the leading theologians of the church to this day. And yet, the way it's described, you think it's just some white guy, you know. And and, and I would, you know, Catholics talk more about. Um, they have some saints of color that they display now that this is after Vatican II. When I was in the Roman Catholic church, it was Vatican. Actually they changed over when I was in the fifth grade, but you know, these things take some time before they actually show up. Right. Right. And so you can see people of color now, but I was, you know, in school learning religion, it was part of the curriculum. Right. And um, they didn't tell us St. Augustine was a black person. I found that out late. We had a church, <laughs> you know, St. Augustine's church here in D.C. Right. Uh, is a black Catholic church. And um, I never connected that until later in right. my life. Well, it's so. not taught. <laughs> it's just not it's not assumed, you know. Yeah. I mean, so many so much of the iconography depicts these early church fathers as Caucasian when they just simply weren't. And, and I, I appreciate more recent iconography that is attempting to redress that. So you will find icons of Augustine where he is, is black or at least a very, very dark complexion. Uh, St. Nicholas, I, I've mm-hmm. seen a beautiful icon of him as, as a black man. Of course, and there was somebody Moses the Black. Moses um, the Black, Desert Father. But let me tell you what I was told because that you know I was in an environment where they had all of the icons, and one of the things we were to do is to just we were learning to pray with icons, so we were going around and everything. And and the icons that I saw, I don't know if they're modern day or you know from back. Some of them were familiar to me, so I would say they have you know, at least some history, but they, all of the um, people on the icons were kind of bronzed, Mm -hmm. like, you know, if you, and so I asked, were all these people, people of color? Because I noticed they have color, you know, the way they, the icons are made. And I was told, well, no, it's just the iconographers all did that. They made them so... They, but, you know, I'm thinking that the people that said that to me may not know either. Right. Because even in when I was going through the spiritual guidance pro- program and we were going through history, in fact, some of the people that they were naming in, in the early p- portions of the church were people of color. But I don't even think they realized that. Right. Yeah. Most likely not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode. We 
we are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.